0: The next two days, we have Father Michael White, who will come with us this afternoon, and Tom Cochran, who, uh, so he will be our, in the first conference, we have a man uh, who has worked in the Church of Nativity uh, for 19 years. He has served in a variety of roles that give him a unique perspective on ministry uh, and leaders. Being as a youth minister first, Tom held positions as coordinator of children ministry, director of small groups. He is currently serves in a position of the associate pastor uh, and, and responsible for the weekend message with Father White. Uh, Tom he lives in Parkville, Maryland. Uh, he and his wife have been married for 18 years, uh, Mia, and they have seven children. Let's white welcome Tom.
1: Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Uh, Sorry, just getting a couple things set up here. Um, Great to be with you. Pulling up the. um, So I grew up outside of Philadelphia. So long way from Philadelphia. I was walking around town yesterday, and there's Philly Ted's cheesesteaks. I'm very curious to taste one of those. I am very doubtful it'll be as good as a Philly cheesesteak, but you guys can tell me if it's good. But anyway, uh, I, I grew up outside Philadelphia. And I uh, grew up in Catholic school, uh, went, went to Mass on Sundays. But other than that, I wasn't really much involved in my parish back at home. Um, so I went to graduated from high school, went to Loyola College, now Loyola University in Baltimore. Uh, at Loyola, I was a writing and political science major. Had absolutely no interest in working for the church, wasn't in, didn't do theology. Uh, and so when I graduated from Loyola... Uh, my, my 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 game plan was to get involved in politics. I'm involved in pro-life stuff, thought about getting involved in pro-life politics, thought about working for a pro-life politician up on Capitol Hill, thought eventually maybe I'd even run for office myself. And so that was sort of my, my game plan when I came into, uh, after I graduated college. But after about six months in Washington, D.C., I decided that really the, the ethos of the town just didn't really fit me, that there was just... I, I knew this wasn't it. I didn't know what I was supposed to do with my life, but I knew this was not my future. So I began to think about my career and maybe what I wanted to do, and I, I, I thought maybe I'd go back to school, get a political philosophy degree. I'd really liked those classes at Loyola, eventually teach at a, at a university or college setting. So that was what was going on in my career. At the same time, I was getting very serious about my girlfriend, uh, now my wife, Mia, and I was, I was thinking about proposing to her. Uh, and in fact, at bought ring and, and that was all kind of in my mindset, now, this was going on in my life when I got a call from a professor from Loyola, um, and she said, would you be interested in a career change? And I thought, well, yeah, actually, I'm what my future might be. And she said, well, we're going to talk to Father Michael White, who's the pastor at Church of the Nativity in Timonium, Maryland. They're looking for a youth. So I said, sure, why not? So uh, Father Michael gave me a call and um, talked about uh, the job at Nativity we, we, we had a few different meetings, and after a few meetings, he offered me the position to be the youth minister at Nativity. And as I was discerning what I should do, I thought, okay, do I go back to school, or do I take the, go back to school full time, or do I take this ministry position at Nativity? And I thought, you know what? If I'm getting married, I probably should have a paycheck. I'd like to say I got into ministry for the money. Now, obviously, you don't stay in ministry for the money. If you do, you're not that smart, because there's plenty of other ways to make lots more money. Um, But I I thought I would stay in the church for two, three years, work in the parish two or three years, then I'd move on to something better. Uh, But what I discovered is there's nothing more important or better than working in a local parish church. Um, As one person likes to say, it's the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. And so... Uh, What I'll be sharing with you today is really comes from our experience working in a parish, and working and seeing tremendous growth in our church. Uh, That, as a result of some of the strategies we're going to be sharing with you the next couple of days, and some of the other insights that we have learned, uh, we have nearly tripled our weekend attendance. Um, We've nearly tripled our volunteer ministers, nearly more tripled our offertory budget, and more importantly than all, and as a spirit that is palpable, that is the movement of God's spirit in our community. Uh, as Father Mark said, I've, I've worked in ch- all these different aspects of a parish. I've been in youth ministry, I've worked in children's ministry, um, run small groups, I've, I've started and launched small groups at our church, helped lead a strategic plan to build a new church that's being constructed right now. So I've gotten to see the, the, whole, the whole perspective, and again, that's my only authority that I, I bring with me today. Um, and so we'll talk about some of those strategies. So I want to begin kind of with a question. Did you ever have experience of saying, you know, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Hopefully, after I speak this morning, you will not be saying, why am I here? Why did I come today? Um, sometimes it can happen in a party. If you're like me, I'm actually very introverted, very str- I struggle to meet new people. So if I go to a party and I don't know anybody at the party, I'm like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Um, it can happen sometimes in a class. Happen all the time with school. I'd be in a class that I hated, that I did not like, and I would say, why Why am I part of this class? Why do I have to take this class? I am never, ever going to use this information. You know, in the, bu- in the busyness of life, we don't ask the why question often enough. And it, d- it doesn't really matter with smaller things, but with the big parts of our life, the why question matters. It's vitally important. So why does the church exist? Why does the church exist? Why does the local church, the, par- the parish, which our, our bishops tell us is the heart of the church, why does it exist? Well, when we first began working at Nativity, we thought our job was to provide better service to church people. Uh, Father Michael, who came a year before me and I came to a parish that was kind of sleepy. It didn't have a lot of programs and activities or programs runnings. The church had been founded in 1968, and the parish had done a great deal of hard work to get to build a church, but kind of as Father Mark talked about, it sort of began, you know, sitting on the couches and not working too hard. And so we thought the problem with the parish was low energy and lack of programs, and that if we invested energy into the programs and services for parish members, then we'd be a successful parish. In other words, we fell into what we have come to call a consumer mentality, that the people in the pews would be thought of as consumers, and it was our job as the parish leaders to help them come consume. And so Father Michael and I, who are pretty much the whole parish staff, set about trying to do that with as much energy as we possibly could. We expanded kids and student programs. I put together all kinds of activities just to try to get kids involved, from craft ski trips, to to lock-ins, to anything I could possibly think of, just to get kids to basically show up at church. We launched new musical programs and offered concerts and all kinds of fellowship programs. We had receptions and bus trips, lectures. We expanded member care as far as we could dream up ways to take it, from hosting complimentary lunches following funerals to coffee service after daily mass. It was all a waste of time. In hindsight, the situation was reminiscent of the Red Queen's race in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. If you remember that, the queen says to Alice, Now here you see, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get anywhere, you'll have to run at least twice as fast as that. Ever feel like that? You're running. You're running as hard as you possibly can just to stay in the same place. And for us, the more we provided, the faster we had to run just to stay in place. And the more that was provided, the more that was demanded. But, but just like Alice, who didn't pause to reflect on why she was running an absurd race for the insatiable queen, we hadn't considered why we were doing what we were doing or what we were accomplishing. And for both, the net effect of our, the net effect of our efforts was creating consumers in which nothing was ever different after than before we spent energy all our energy for nothing except creating more demanding consumers and so father michael and i each kind of had our own epiphanies into understanding that we were just creating more demanding consumers i'll share mine and also share some of father michael's thoughts that he would usually present if he was here for me it came from reading a book by doug fields called purpose-driven youth ministry. And as I read through the book, I thought, that's it. <laughs> that's my problem. That's why I feel so burnt out. I don't know my purpose. I don't know why I'm doing all these things. I know I love the church. I know I love God. And I know, you know, But I don't know why I'm doing all these things in ministry. If you've read our book, Rebuilt, Father Michael talks about how this came crashing down on him at an event, event during Lent. There was a ma- we, had, we had this program that we'd run during Lent for, for every year, for all the Fridays in Lent. There was Mass and Stations of the Cross and a featured speaker, but the draw was dinner, which we provided free of charge. You could make a free will offering, but we provided free of charge with the thought that the free dinner would attract people, which it did. We also had child care and student programs, and hundreds and hundreds of people came, it was called Family Friendly Friday, but it wasn't all that friendly, at least to our staff, because we piled this program on top of everything else we were trying to do. And so, well, the sixth and final evening one time, and every time on that sixth and final weekend, it felt like total and utter burnout. And think about that. Afterwards, you know, we had still had Holy Week up ahead. And you know how busy that week is. Well, Father White talks about he was serving dinner because that's what he thought he was supposed to do. And a woman came up to complain about the food. That would be the free food. And she was joined by a chorus of complaints. Everyone complaining about the free food. And Father Michael describes it this way. He says, it was like some artery exploded. He can be kind of dramatic, let me just tell you that. But like an artery exploded and he knew in an instant, as he said, this was his epiphany, if you didn't count all the time before that, that he was wasting his time and wasting his life. And he thought in that moment, why am I doing this? When we lose our why, we lose our purpose. We are adrift on a dangerous sea of disillusion and disappointment. That can lead to depression and even despair. When you lose your why, when you lose your why, come on up. When you lose your why, you lose your way. When you lose your why in anything in life your marriage, your family, your ministry you lose your way. When you lose your why, You lose your way. So why does a local parish exist? And to understand that, we return, as we always do, to our Savior. To what Jesus said. Jesus gives us our why. And we find it most clearly explained to us in Matthew 28. And Jesus says this, remember Matthew 28... The last, last chapter of Matthew's Gospel, the beginning is the tomb narratives, and it ends with the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And so Jesus gathers together his 11 remaining loyal apostles, and he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now even that sentence packed, packed with meaning. To truly understand it, we need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And when God created the earth, he gave it to our first parents. He said, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, you have authority over this earth. But very quickly, our first parents, they surrendered that authority over to the evil one. When they ate the forbidden fruit. When they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so the story of the Old Testament is a story of God preparing to send his son into the world... To win back the authority, our first parents surrendered in the Garden of Eden. And so now Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now guys, I want you to take it. right? And, and they had seen what Jesus had done. I mean, to win back that authority, we know what Jesus had to do. He had to go to the cross. He was beaten, bloody nailed to a cross, but on the third day, you know, suffered, died, was buried, but on the third day, he rose again to win back the authority our parents, had. first parents had surrendered. And so now, he gets the 11 remaining loyal apostles together, and he says this, he says, I want you to go. Go and, now think about what he does not say there, though. Go and play bingo. Go and run potluck suppers. Go and run middle school lock-ins. As a former youth minister, thank you, Jesus, I don't have to run middle school lock-ins. Go and, and I heard it over here, go and make disciples. Go make disciples. That's it. That's why we exist. It's so simple. And then, Just to add on to it, that Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. So in other words, the apostles were wondering, okay, Jesus, when have we fulfilled our quota? When can we stop? When can we sit back and put our feet up on the couch? Jesus said, no, no, no. You go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples until everyone on the earth is a follower of Jesus. Now, that go and make disciples of all nations, that's the mission of the whole universal church. But if you're like me and you work in a parish, that's where you're to make disciples. But our parish is not, is understood not just to be the people coming to church. It's not just the people in our pews. We understand that in Catholic theology and Catholic uh, doctrine to be a, a geographical area canon law the parish is a geographical area and that means our job is to encourage everyone to come into a relationship with jesus christ not just the people already in our pews as one pa- pastor likes to put it he says this, your zip code is your mission field now i understand here in south dakota your zip code or zip codes are a lot bigger Then our zip code is outside of Baltimore and Timonium, but your zip code is your mission field. Um, So, we're supposed to make disciples. Well, what are disciples? Well, disciples, we say this, and Father Mark was talking about this as well, and we, we know we could spend a whole bunch of time talking about this, but we like to just say this. Disciples are students who are learning to follow the master. And to be a disciple, you don't have to be perfect, you don't have to have it all together. To to, to be following the master, to be following Jesus, you don't have to be perfect, right? You can still have a lot of bad habits and be a disciple, but a disciple is someone who is trying to be a little bit more like Jesus today than they were yesterday, and hopefully by God's grace will be a little bit more like Jesus tomorrow than they are today. And we simply put it like this. Disciple, sorry about this, is someone who's growing to love God, love others, and make disciples. Disciple is someone who's growing to love God, love others, and make disciples. All right, so disciples growing to love I mean, this is fairly obvious. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. In other words, love God with with all you have, as Father Mark talked about. And so we say this, that it begins with Mass. Coming to worship God at Mass. It continues through private disciplines, like prayer and fasting and giving. It's that loving God involves a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. As Jesus says in, in John 10. He says, He is the good shepherd. His sheep hear his voice. They know his voice. You know, interesting story about shepherds in the, in the Middle East. Uh, I was reading a book that talked about how uh, I think it was the, the, the Israel, Israel soldiers had, had conquered a town or had, had taken all the sheep from a town, like thousands of sheep. And this woman was really, a Palestinian woman came, was really poor and broke. She had nothing left. And there was thousands of sheep, and she said, can I have my ten sheep back? And the soldier said, no, you you know, no. She's like, you're not going to be able to find them among all these thousands of sheep. And this Palestinian woman said, well, if I can find my sheep, if I can get my ten sheep, can I have them back? And the, the soldiers kind of were bored and said, okay, go ahead, you try to find them. So she sends her son into the, the, the sheep fold, and she begins calling and wouldn't you know it, just those ten sheep come following him out. Shepherd. The sheep know the voice. The shepherd. And they have a personal relationship with him. It is, loving God is offering all of our lives back to God as a living sacrifice. I think, as Father Mark's talking about, with stewardship. It's a, a living sacrifice. Our work life, our family life, our recreational life, our relational life. Everything. Offering all of it back to God as a living sacrifice, as Paul talks about in Romans 12. Offer your lives as a living sacrifice. Problem with living sacrifice, though, can fall off the altar. It's constant. We need to be doing it over and over again. So disciples are growing to love God, but you know, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? If you remember, he, he didn't really just give one, did he? He said there's one, and really there's one A. Love God with all you have, and, 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 and. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So disciples are growing to love God as they love themselves. That, you know, Jesus criticized the Pharisees who knew all the rules and knew all the laws, but they were really not very good at loving people. And so loving others means serving others. Being in fellowship with other believers. Encouraging others. Accepting others. Forgiving others. Right, all those one another's that Paul talks about in his letters over and over again. Love your neighbor, and Jesus said this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And it's impossible to love your neighbor if you hate yourself. It's impossible to love your neighbor if you're burnt out and not taking care of yourself. Jesus seems to imply that our ability to love our neighbors rises and falls to our ability to love and care for ourselves. To our ability to practice self-care of caring for our mind, our body, and our spirit. So Jesus said, love God, love others, and then we say this, disciples, disciples are growing to love God, love others, and disciples are growing to make disciples. Right When Jesus called the first apostles, fall, called the first disciples, he said this, follow me and I will make you. He didn't say, follow me and I'll make you smarter. He didn't say, follow me and I'll make you richer. He didn't say, follow me and I'll make you you Holier. Jesus said, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." Jesus implied that if you follow him long enough, you will bring other people into a relationship with him. You'll be a disciple who makes disciples, and we see this repeated over and over and over and over again in the Gospels. I mean, just think a couple of weeks ago, the Gospel, the woman at the well. Here is a woman that goes to the well in the heat of the day, the hottest part of the day. I mean, in the Middle East, where it, you know, it gets up to 120 degrees. She goes to the well at that time of day to draw water for herself and carry these huge, huge, huge buckets back. Laborious task. She does that in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to see anyone. And she doesn't want to see anyone because she's got a past. But this one day, she meets Jesus. And there she has this incredible conversation with Jesus. And as a result, she runs back to the town, to the very people she did not want to see, and she says, hey, I've come and met somebody who knows everything about me. And as I said, she had a past. Everybody knew there was some, you know, all the things about her. But she said, see, a man who knows everything about me, and look, he accepts me. He loves me. Could this not be the Messiah? And so this woman goes and introduces people to the person of Jesus. The same woman who before did everything she could to stay away from them. Remember one of my favorite stories is the Gerasene demoniac. Think about this story. One day Jesus gets in the boat that cross the Sea of Galilee. Right? There's a storm. The apostles think they're going to die. Jesus calms the storm says, where is your faith? He you know, goes through this whole, whole storm. He gets to the other side and there is a man possessed by a legion of demons mark's gospel tells us so much so that he breaks chains he's naked and so jesus throws the demons out of the man into the swine herd they run off the cliff and then jesus after cleansing the man the former demoniac gets right back in the boat he seemingly came all this way just for one guy And then we're told by Mark's gospel that this guy, possessed, tries to get back in the boat with Jesus. And Jesus tells him, no. No. Go back and tell everybody what God has done for you. And apparently he did. Because the next time Jesus comes to that same region, there are crowds of people coming to hear hear him speak. And to be healed by him. So disciples are going to love God love others, and make disciples. So we recognized in our time, in our story, that while we were working really hard, we weren't succeeding as Jesus had called us to succeed. We weren't making disciples, but religious consumers. And our programs were not leading people to give more and more of their lives to God or doing what Jesus had called us to do. So at this point, I just want to pause here. I want to give you a few minutes to talk to someone, to talk to a And if you don't have a friend, make one real fast, okay? And a couple questions here. This is really slow. Okay. So to some discussion questions. Because it's just important we slow down on this point. So number one, Jesus was very clear about the mission he gave to the church. Why do you think it's so easy for us to lose sight of it? And maybe you don't think it is. Maybe you're crystal clear on it. But you can argue that way too if you want. Second, what are you doing as a parish that's not making disciples but because you've always done it? might be a fundraiser. might be. Third, what is a program or activity that's burning you out and not making disciples or not as effective as it should be? So take a few minutes. Make, turn just to one partner. And have a conversation about those questions. You can do groups of three if that's more comfortable. Whatever, whatever works. Show of hands. Who said I know exactly what I would want to cut or what I would kill or get rid of? Or, wow, no one. No one. Okay, one. Good. Thanks for playing. I appreciate it. I appreciate that. Um, you know, if Father talked about, you know, being up again. I. I I think there's sometimes our problem in the church is that, yeah, there's people who are burnt out, who should have stopped doing what they're doing a long time ago, or had that curmudgeon attitude that Father talked about. And that definitely, we need to guard our hearts from that for sure. Um, But I think sometimes the reason why we don't do anything new or try new things is because we don't have the energy, because we've expended it all on things we're already doing. And uh, Father Michael and I are definitely going to challenge you to think about church in some new ways. Again, we can say they have borne fruit in our community. Uh, one thing I it's kind of I usually say in the beginning of our ch- talk is this: is that you know we don't know everything about running a parish. Um, we've written a book that doesn't, you know, that we are. But we just say this: it only makes us the world class experts on discipleship and evangelization in a place called Timonium, Maryland, in 2017. That's what we do know. But we do, and but our job is not to tell you everything about running a parish. It's only to tell you what we have known. We can't fill your cup. What we just try to do is empty our cup into yours, empty our knowledge and wisdom into, into you. That said, we do think there are transferable principles, and we do think you can learn from us, and we do think we can help you and serve you. And we're going to challenge you to do some things you haven't done before or to think of ministry in some new ways. But it's very hard to do that and keep doing what you're doing. There's some things you might have to stop. Again, that's the problem in church ministry. We don't stop doing things, do we? You know, we're like the federal you know, government. We just keep them going all, all, on and on and on. You know, we need to learn to stop some things that are not working so we can start the things that will produce fruit and that will bear fruit in our parishes. So, oh, um, you know, maybe you guys are just shy or not, but I, I would really challenge you to think about these things you're doing that, you know, either aren't really making disciples or investments of time that when you think about the, you know, the cost-benefit analysis, the cost-benefit ratio of, of how many disciples it's actually making versus the time and energy you're putting into it, that you might identify some things you need to stop doing. Or maybe there are things you know, that you can't stop doing, but you know what, you're not really good at it, and you need to delegate to somebody else or find a, a key leader or volunteer to do it. Okay, so just kind of going back to, to our story We were burning out, we were exhausted, we had no sense of our purpose, and so for us, our story began to change when we humbled ourselves, if just a little bit, to learn from growing healthy churches. We wanted to learn from growing healthy churches, even if that meant turning to Protestants, So as I mentioned, I had read a book by Doug Fields, who was the youth pastor at a book called Saddleback Church out in Orange County, California. Has everyone heard of Saddleback Church? Um, it is Pastor Rick Warren's church. And so I had read this book from Doug Fields, and over time, I heard they were once, eventually I heard they were having a youth conference in, in Orange County, California, so I emailed Father Michael, hey, do you want to go out to Saddleback Church for this youth ministry conference? And he wrote me back, sure, why not? Let's go. And so we went to to Saddleback. And when we walked on the Saddleback's campus, it was like stepping on to another planet. Uh, We went up to one building that we assumed was the main church, only to find out that it was a nursery building dedicated to serving children and creating an irresistible environment for kids. when, When we continued to walk around the church, the campus, we were kind of nervous. We were afraid we might be outed. As Catholics, in an evangelical setting, we kind of were going in there in a stealth manner. We didn't want to be outed. You know, we went into the church, which, you know, was really kind of more than a Walmart with chairs. You know, and from us, that wasn't our experience. Our experiences of big churches were, you know, these big, beautiful churches, ornamental churches. But Saddleback's church was so different. But what impressed us about Saddleback Church wasn't really the facilities, and the campus, which were very impressive. But what really impressed us about Saddleback was the people. The people were so friendly. They were so friendly. They weren't like our parishioners. They were so friendly. In fact, Father Michael tells a story of going into one door and being so warmly greeted by the people at Saddleback that he exited and tried a different door just to see if he could repeat the experience. And he did. The people were so friendly. And as we looked, people were like, why aren't our people this friendly? Why isn't our congregation this? We had a community of people, too, that were friendly and were sold out for the church and for God. And we're like, why isn't our church like that? And so as a result, we continued to go back to Saddleback Church, and we, we went there, and then we visited some other, a couple other of evangelical churches. We went to Willow Creek in Chicago, North Point, and Atlanta. And as we did that, we began to learn different things. And we learned a great, great many, many things, great many things that were so helpful for us. And I think some of the things, some of what we learned, or what was really important about that experience for us is that we were getting outside our comfort zone. And so growth is always outside our comfort zone. So that was a key lesson in retrospect, that we, as we were getting outside our comfort zone, we were growing. Another key lesson that I would say is this, that because we were growing as leaders, because we were getting outside our comfort zone, our parish was able to grow. You know, everything rises and falls upon leadership. You know, read the book of Kings, so how the kings of Israel go, so goes the nation of Israel. Well, as the leaders in your parish go, so goes your parish. Now, leadership isn't always a position. It often can be a far, you know, something that people assume, that people have influence. But if, if you have growing leaders in your parish, your parish will be growing. So, so we learned that we need to get outside our comfort zone. We learned that we need to be growing for our parish to grow. The thing we're going to, what I want to talk about for the rest of this session and then uh, after the break um, is this, three key strategies that have driven our transformation as church. Now, before I, I, I do that, I want to read this quote to you from a book called Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard. It's a great book by Chip and Heath, if you can read it. Um, it's just a great book, really easy to read. They're, they're, they're easy easy writers to read. They say this, though. There's a clear asymmetry between the scale of the problem and the scale of solution. So the book switched How to Change and Change is Hard. So they're looking at all these changes and how people make change in difficult situations. And as they studied all these situations, they say this. There's a clear asymmetry between the scale of the problem and the scale of the problems, of the solution. Big problem. Small solution. Little things are big things. Big problems, small solutions. Big problems are rarely solved with commensurately big solutions. Instead, they are most often solved by a sequence of small solutions, sometimes over weeks, and sometimes over decades. As a church in the United States, we're dealing with huge problem. One of the things that bothers us, is if you read some of the statistics, was a study we found a few years ago that... Um, when they asked people about their religious affiliation. And the number one religious affiliation in the United States was Catholic. It's it's still Catholic. Second was Southern Baptist. The third largest religious affiliation, the, the third largest way that people associated themselves with religion was to call themselves former Catholics. In other words, say, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I don't know what I am but I've been so turned off by the church, I know I'm not Catholic anymore. That's a huge problem. That's why we, we hemorrhage people. And so the, the solution so t- many times for us is, think we've got to think, think of a big, huge solution to that problem. It's not a big, huge solution. It's a sequence of small solutions over weeks and years and decades. And the parish, the parish, is, right, it's the smallest place of the church, right? That's where rebuilding the church happens. So I, w- I just want to share with you a few, these three kind of core strategies that we learned by studying Willow Creek and North Point and Saddleback and some of these other churches that we, we brought into our church. So number one, we realized this. Here's what we learned from Saddleback and some of these other churches. Like a day late and a dollar short with, this, with these swipes. All right, number one, we need to change our focus from church people. And what happened to that last one? I don't know why it's gone. To unchurch people. Somehow that got messed up there. From church people to unchurch people. Okay, we need to change our focus from church people to unchurch people. All right, in other words, we need to stop thinking about church from the perspective of people in the church and start thinking about the church from the perspective of people that were not coming. And so this could be unchurched people, people who've never had any association with the church. or The other term we use sometimes is de church people. People who, like those former Catholics, who had gone to church and had stopped coming. That when we looked at Saddleback these other churches, they clearly know, knew who was not coming to church, and they could think about church from that person's perspective. And so that when they came to church, they would felt welcomed and accepted. Number two... We need to prioritize the weekend experience. <clears throat> and by that, I mean the, the weekend mass and the programs around it. Um, in our book, if you read our book Rebuilt, we call this chapter, it's about the weekend stupid. And for us, we kind of consider ourselves the stupid because it took us so long to understand this. And, and even that it's about the weekend stupid was a paraphrase of James Carville's uh, axiom about the 1992 election. Uh, if you, you remember that election, um, the, uh, the Clinton campaign's core message was, it's about the economy, stupid. And the reason, they, they used that uh, phrase to keep everybody on in the campaign on point. Everyone from the lowest volunteer in the campaign to President Clinton, to eventually candidate and then eventually President Clinton himself. No matter what, You think about that election, you have to admit, it was a pretty sticky statement. People remembered it. So we say it's about the weekend, stupid. We've got to prioritize the weekend experience of the masses and the programs around the mass. Because it's the weekend that can have the greatest impact. We'll talk about that later. And third, we said this, that... Come on. There we go. We have challenged church people to take responsibility for their faith... And the mission of the church. That we had to move church people to action. That we had had the whole wrong framework and mindset about the people in the pews. We had thought of them as consumers. We had thought of them as people that we needed to please and make happy coming to church. Right? And we thought, we realized, no, that's the, when we went to Saddleback these other churches, they had a totally different mindset about the people in the church. The people in the pews that had been coming for a long time. Instead of thinking, they they were constantly challenged them in two ways. Number one, to take responsibility for their faith. In other words, the spiritual growth and the the faith of the people in the pews is not all, that that the responsibility falls on them, not on us, in the sense of they need to take personal responsibility. It's not all up to Father, it's not up to the church staff to to spoon-feed you baby food your whole life. We certainly need to serve you, we certainly need to help you, but eventually, you've got to take responsibility for your faith. And second, to take responsibility for the mission of the church. That the mission of the church to go and make disciples, is, again, it's not just father, it's not just the pastor, it's not just the parish staff. It's all of us as a church. And so we needed to challenge the people in our pews to go and make disciples. You know, it's interesting Early on, when we had written the book and I was at one of our first conferences, someone asked us, uh, what do you guys do for faith formation? And I said, all of it. It's all faith formation. If it's not forming people in faith or making disciples, again, why are we doing it? We need to think of everything we do as making disciples. And if it's not making disciples, let's let it go and not do it. All right, so break here, let me just go over this first strategy. You need to challenge... I'm sorry, we need to change our focus from unchurched people to focus on unchurched people. All right, we need to change our focus from church people to unchurched people. Okay, now, let me just say this: something about the church. This is very difficult for us. And it's been very difficult from the church going all the way back to the first century. That we tend to think about church from our perspective, and that makes sense, we're church people. But think about the first century. All right? The first council, the council of Jerusalem. Acts 15 tells us that, you know, the book Acts of the Apostles first of all tells us that Paul and Barnabas, they're out there killing it. They're out into the Gentile world and they're bringing people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They're bringing these people who are unchurched people, who know nothing about Jesus. And they're, they're baptizing and they're, 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 making them, they're making them disciples. Well, we meanwhile, back at headquarters, back in Jerusalem, there's some Pharisees who became followers of Jesus, which is great that the Pharisees became Some Pharisees began to follow Jesus after the resurrection and believe in it. But some of the Pharisees are saying, all right, to become a Christian, you need to follow all the Mosaic law, including you have to be circumcised. Think about that. You had to have surgery to become a Christian. I mean, the new members' classes was all women and children. The men are thinking, all right, I'm going to sit in the car, honey. I've got to think about this. Right? And and you know, but eventually, the Council of Jerusalem, they meet and they talk and they say, okay, okay, no. You know, James speaks up, Peter speaks up, and they say, no, let's, let's just give them a few things that help unite the Jews and the Gentiles. Like, like don't eat meat, sacrifice the idols, you know, and, and you know, drink blood, you know, all those kind of things, and avoid sexual immorality, do this, and you'll be well. Right? They, they made it easy for the people who are outsiders to become insiders. But as a church, we are, it, it, again, it's, it's nothing, I don't know what it is, I don't know why it is, but it just is. Our, our, we are so, we so usually challenge the in, outsiders and comfort insiders. We need to be comforting outsiders and challenging insiders. So we have to, to focus on the people not coming to church. And if you think about this, to kind of put it in a business mindset, forgive the analogy, but that's our greatest growth market. Right? If you're in business and you're trying to grow your business, you certainly want to get the people who are buying from you already to buy more, but you want to get attract new customers. You want to bring new people in the door. And so you market, you think about what will make your product accessible to them, or why they would want it. We need to think about why would people want to come into the church and be part of Christ's church. And so for us to do that, we we, we've met this mythical figure we call Timonium Tim, because we're from Timonium. So we say, define your Tim. We call him Timonium Tim. It's kind of cute, kind of annoying, but you'll remember it, right? Timonium Tim. Let me describe to you Tim. Okay, well, we grew up, we're in Baltimore, so we grew up, Tim, Baltimore's a very Catholic community. So Tim grew up Catholic. Um, he went through either Catholic school or, 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 confirmation, or confirmation classes, but after confirmation classes, his parents stopped making him go to church, his mom stopped making him to church, and Tim stopped going. Um, Tim is kind of now mid, late late to late 30s, mid 40s. He's got a stressful life, he's got a ton because he's, he's living way, way of, of his means, and he's in a ton of debt. He's got three kids, which means he's got to bring the kids to three different schools in three different directions, and afterwards, he's got a whole bunch of sports that he's running around to try to get to his kids' games, because for him, that's how he shows love to his kids. You know, Tim's life, his marriage is starting to fray a little bit because God's not a part of it. You know, on the weekends, Tim's the Ravens game on a Sunday morning. Tim's going to go to the Ravens game, uh, if it's football season, he's going to go tailgate probably like 9 or 10 in the morning, hang out there all day. Uh, If it's nicer weather, he's going to probably go play golf, or he's just going to kind of relax and enjoy some Tim time. You know, but Tim will not be at church on a Sunday morning. What what Tim knows about Catholicism is a muddled mess from what he thinks he remembers from those confirmation classes and what he learned from the Da Vinci Code. And so we tried to think about church from Tim's perspective. And we know that if Tim comes to church, he's going to have a whole bunch of baggage. He's going to have a whole bunch, I mean, he's going to wonder if he's being judged. He hasn't been to church again since he was a kid. Maybe he's been in church for weddings or funerals, but that's about it. And every time he's come to church, it's been boring and bad and irrelevant to his life, and so that's why he stopped going. And so... You know, Tim come, if Tim does come to church on a Sunday, you know, as we were looking at our experience way back, we realized it wasn't going to be a very welcoming experience because Tim carried this package. Tim's afraid he's being judged. Tim's afraid lightning might strike if he comes in the door. Right? And so, um, we also understand that we are competing for Tim's time. That if he does come to church, and, and the, the time we know that Tim's most likely to give us a chance is on the weekend. Our best chance to reach Tim is on the weekend. The reason the weekend's the best chance to reach Tim is because that's when he has free time. As a church, we deal with people's leisure time. Right? We, you know, people have their work life, they have their family life, and you know, activities going on, and we're somewhere, again, in all that leisure time activity. So the best chance Tim's going to come is on a weekend. And so we try to think about the experience Tim is having, both, in, again, in, in small ways, Because often what's keeping people from church is not really theological or philosophical, at least not in our community. It's it's more mundane than mystical, what keeps people from coming to church. That Often what keeps them from coming is they don't think they're welcome, or they don't think there's any value to it. They're going to get anything out of it. And so we try to think about church from Tim's perspective, the weekend from Tim's perspective. And that we're competing for Tim's time to come to church. This competing game kind of clear to me one time on a Sunday morning just about how we're competing for people's time as a church. Uh, my my uh, in-laws are in Connecticut. So it's about a four and a half hour, five hour drive from Baltimore. So we don't get up there all that often. But one Sunday morning in the summer, we were up there. And uh, my, parent, my in-laws put a pool in their backyard not too long ago, so this one Sunday morning, I was uh, uh, about not maybe 10 a.m. and I'm 9 a.m. whatever early morning, and I'm I'm reading my Bible, having a cup of coffee, just enjoying Sunday morning off. That was great, and uh, so because because I'm usually at church, and so on this this one morning, I'm having my coffee, my kids, my three older boys. So I have seven kids. The first three are, are all boys, and the three older boys come out and say, "Let's go, let's go swimming," and so. I'm like, all right, I get changed, and it's, you know, I jump in the pool, I'm swimming, and I'm just having a great time. I mean, this is like, you know, it's one of those few moments, that doesn't happen all the time as a father. You're like, this is what's great about being a father, I'm throwing my kids in the pool, throwing a ball, you know, just having a great time with them. And then suddenly it suddenly dawns on me, I don't want to leave this. I mean, it's almost time to go to church, but I don't want to go to church. I want to stay here in the pool with my kids, and you know, I'm resting, it's the Sabbath, and... You know, I'm having a great time with my kids. I'm being a good father. You know, this is all, all what's supposed to be. I, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to mass today. I, I did go to mass, just in case you're wondering, if you're checking on me. But, but that's often what we're competing with. We're competing with people's free time. And so we want to think about church from the unchurched person's perspective that they'll want to come and begin investing and in giving their life to it. So as I said, our best time, our best opportunity to reach Tim, we say, is on the weekend. Um, And so we want to invest in our weekend experience because it's the best way, both to get people on the discipleship path, which we're going to talk about, and to attract the unchurched people in our community. So I want to pause here and give you another opportunity for questions. And I want you just to think about your Tim, the unchurched people in your community. Oh, here we go. So define your Tim. Who are the unchurched people? Uh, what are and what are unchurch people doing on a sun, Sunday morning instead of going to church? What makes your community unique? You know, I talked about how again we're a very Catholic community, um, and so it's for us that's we just know it's in the background. Whether you grew up going to Catholic church, either we know you're, you're baptized Catholic, you've married a Catholic, you've gone to Catholic school, you have some connection for us. That's our community. You know, I, we've been to Portland, Oregon, and you know it's a very different there, where kind of very nature loving might be kind of similar here. And so people, what's competing for people's time is hiking and outdoor activities and that kind of thing. Um, and, and there was in Ann Arbor, Michigan and they talked about how they're right in the shadows of University of Michigan. So for them, it, it's a very cerebral community and that's what people, keeps people from church is more intellectual issues and they have to address that. But what makes your community unique and how do those affect people's attitude towards church? And just think about a friend or a family member that has stopped going to church what happened? What would, if you were to ask them, why don't you go to church, what would they say? So I'll give you a couple minutes again, turn and discuss those questions. Um, that could be a much longer discussion. Uh, we have some of our, I think um, there's a Catholic bookstore here selling our rebuilt field guides, which uh, we have a lot of these, some of these questions we have are in that book. And, and um, so again, I know that a, that's a conversation that can go much longer. Probably I would encourage, get your pastoral staff or get your um, some key volunteers together and just talk about that. Because what's really important about the finding Tim is it just in our church, you know, to help, again, to shortcut, to think about the unchurched person's perspective, we just say, okay, what would Tim think? So before we say something, before we present something, that's just always in the back of our mind. And the important part of this is to bring this into your church culture that everybody's th- thinking, or at least the key leaders in your church are thinking about the unchurched person. Um, and as you do that, as you, as you think about that person and have that person in mind, again, it will help to soak in to your culture. So um, you can have much longer discussion. And if you need some help with that, um, our Rebuilt Field Guide is a great resource to help. Um, so questions. There's two uh, microphones here.
2: Tim in my parish is a father of a young family. Uh, they are so very busy. They have five kids. They're five busy. kids? They're busy. Wow. They are busy with soccer. They are busy with uh, all of the school activities. Uh, they've been coming to mass out of a sense of duty. Uh, they don't feel like they're being fed. They uh, so
1: they drop. Right, that happens a lot. Five kids. That's a big. That's a big family. It's not a lot of five kids family. Catholic
2: family. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Catholic family. Yeah, if you, too, if you want to describe them in your community, that's great, too. Come on up and do that.
2: I think you would find that an awful lot of the Tims uh, would have issues associated with birth control, premarital sex, living together, abortion, divorce, and reluctance, knowing what their past has been, of getting over the obstacle, coming back to confession, and feeling that they they don't go to confession, you know, they're not, they're not back in. Did you find that being the case out there or not? You seem to talk about Tim's in a different different variety than I see.
1: So, so say again, would uh, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, Tim's definitely living according to the world. Is that what you mean by that? And definitely not through Catholic faith at all. So, again, and we have to be careful of that, I think, because, um, I think at least, again, for us, people like Tim has some of the Christian mores and Christian, va- or Christian values. They're still there. You know, even our, church, even our culture, which is largely... So many of our, our the things in the culture that people think are, you know, that are... Even people who stand against the church don't understand that the values they have are because of the church. <laughs> that sometimes the ultimate, you know, the freedom of the individual, the compassion, things like that, that sometimes drive people who argue against the church don't understand that those are all Christian principles and values, so, but yeah, I would say Tim is not, obviously is thrown away that it doesn't, doesn't see the church as an authority in his life. We're trying to win back that influence. We've lost that influence.
0: All right, uh, we come from a huge agricultural community where um, we're a cluster of parishes, of four small parishes, and so we're sharing one priest. And, uh, that's spread out over 40 miles. Wow. And so, I think each parish has its own Tim. And uh, I like how you said that they have a lot of this Christian values. I mean, our community is very, very nice. You know, all the people are very friendly, hardworking. But a lot of these ranchers and farmers don't don't come to Mass on Sunday. And so... With that, and, and there are people here from all four parishes. Um, how do we try to implement these things without burning out one the few people that we do have, and two our priest who is spread out over four parishes?
1: I so again, one I think is always if you need to stop doing some things. Is there some things you're doing that are not um, that are not uh, making bearing fruit? I think the other thing about burning people is we need to get more people involved, right? That we need to challenge the church people in the pews to be the church, right? The church is not just the pastor or the staff or the priest. Again, we say this all the time in our our theology. We are the church. And so uh, we're going to talk about a little bit this afternoon about how do you challenge church people and steps you can take to do that to get more people involved. Um, So, again, I think it shouldn't all fall on the pastor, does that answer your question enough? Or I mean, there's, there's probably more we could say on that, but we'll talk about challenging church people today, later, later today.
3: So I'm the director of Catholic social services. And so my Tim is really different. It's a single mom with three kids trying to work two jobs and living in low income housing. Uh, my Tim is a native American family who has 15 people living in a place that's very, very difficult and who have a, had a really ambivalent relationship with the church, and the, the kids there are not sure they understand the fact that meth is destroying their neighborhood and their families. That and what is, I'm sorry? Th- those are the kind of Tims I think oftentimes we see come through our door. They're, they're a little different, different characters, and, and some of them are coming in because they're struggling for sobriety for the first time in their life, and Saturday morning is recovery time from the hangover they had yesterday. Um, it usually their, their moment for, for intervention is not on the weekend, it's when the pain is so great that they're looking for a solution bigger than themselves.
1: Yeah, a, a couple, of, couple of thoughts on that. One, we actually, I remember a few years ago, talked to our, the, the head of Catholic Charities in Baltimore, in Baltimore and they had the exact, got, they had a, a target audience. And So again, sometimes with the idea of a target, people think that means you're saying you can't hit other people. It, it, it works the opposite. If you know your target, you will hit the people not in your target. And it sounds counterintuitive because, you know, sometimes people think, well, why, you know, why isn't, you know, Tim's wife mentioned in your, in your thing? Well, we really believe if Tim is happy coming to church, his wife will be very happy at our church. And we have many stories of, of women who don't really like or are more traditional maybe than our church or wouldn't have liked our church, but, hey, my husband's happy coming. And if he's happy coming, I'm happy. Uh, my sister deals with this, that she just wants her husband to come to church. And so I, I hear it from my sister all the time, the, the struggles she has. So just number one on the target, that's important. And then obviously that's, that's a different thing. I was at a second point, but I've lost it. I forgot. <laughs> but we just say the weekend, obviously, because that's when I like what we said about people hurting. And if there is an opportunity that Tim might be hurting and things going wrong in his life, and he might come and give church a try. But he's going to come on a Sunday. And so we want to be ready every single Sunday because we don't know Tim, when Tim's walking in the door. We have a little thing we call one day. One day, the people the friend, the family member, the coworker who you know is far from God or doesn't have a relationship with God, one day we know they're walking through our doors. And we don't know what day it is. So every Sunday we want to be ready for that person coming in. Thank you.
4: Um, from our perspective down there on the Pine Ridge Reservation, you know, I I've been a Tim and have managed to uh, return to the church. But Tim's come from us from all kinds of perspectives. It's not always the same thing. And Mine was because when Vatican II happened, there wasn't enough catechesis to help me understand what was going on in the church, so of course I stepped away from the church for quite a while. At the same time, they passed the Freedom of Religious Act, which allowed my people, the Lakota people, to reclaim their identity, their spiritual identities, and their culture. So there were a lot of things that were going on, besides what happens to a lot of places, including Rapid City, a lot of drugging and alcohol and that kind of stuff and poverty. But in looking at solutions, one of the things that I, when you were um, talking about some of your things that we've done back home is we had a baptism weekend. And when you talked about doing things for the weekend, I believe that was, um, that's part of the solution is to do those weekends when people can be available and are looking for answers to be ready to receive them and have programs in place that can um, impact their lives by providing it. We also had a a grief recovery weekend just recently, and I think that impacted quite a few people. And so we're not talking about big numbers, but we're talking about enough numbers that we can be grateful for the people that do come and experience the positive things that are happening. And I think you're right. We, We are in certain situations providing things all the time, which allows for some burnout, but finding other kinds of solutions like the weekend Opportunity, I think, is our is something that we should really focus on and begin to work with. Great, thank you.
1: Do one one more, and I think we got break. Right.
4: Well,
2: first of all, I'm Father Timothy, (laughs) and I'm from Sturgis, so um, we're talking about Sturgis stew. uh, But I don't want to talk about stew right now. Um, I want to address something you mentioned earlier: the, the prioritizing the weekend. Um, and, uh, I, I wonder if it would make a difference, at least from our perspective as the evangelizers, um, if we, if we changed our terminology a little bit to something more Christian, um, and instead of talking about weekend and weekend masses, uh, we talk instead about the Lord's day and, you know, because, uh, well, for one thing, um, uh, Pope St. John Paul II and his, uh, uh, Encyclical Dies Domini, said that we should get away from that secular terminology because it, it signifies something very different in a person's mind. Uh, you know, we talk about, what are you going to do with your weekend? Or, my weekend was really great this this week. You know, it's something that I have. My, it belongs to me. And so church becomes just another weekend activity. But if we talk about the Lord's Day begins, you know, like the Jewish Sabbath at sundown on Saturday or thereabouts, um, then we're talking about something that belongs to the Lord. And I, I just wonder if that might change our approach and our perspective a little bit if we use that kind of Christian nomenclature.
1: So I'm going to respectfully, I'm going to agree, respectfully disagree. So I'll agree on this. You know, however you want to define that, Father, I think that's great. I mean, if, for me, the burning passion is... Let's let's have when people come to mass on Sunday, and give us a try. Let's let's make that a great experience for them, and let's put our energy and resources. And if, if saying it's the Lord's day helps us do that, I absolutely agree with that. There's no pride of it's got to be prioritized the weekend experience. I have no pride in that whatsoever. I just I just my burning passion is to see parishes where people come on Sunday and it's accessible and welcoming to people outside the church. My, my pushback and this is all I mean is, again, we just have to be careful. Well. There's a balance we have, a tension we walk of trying to just think about things, again, from the unchurched person's perspective. And so some, our language sometimes has to reflect that in the sense that uh, we don't want to be using churchy words too much. That, And again, there's a tension there because we obviously have to use church words. Every profession has its own kind of insider language or uses terms because it carries, again, a, a kind of, for us as church people, holiness, a sacredness to us that we want to make sure saturates what we do. On the other hand, we're, there's just always this tension of we got to think of it from the people's perspective that are, are not coming because if we don't think from their perspective, we'll never ever reach them. So that's just my, my thoughts on that. Now we're going to break, sorry.